Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Mark, according to um, um, chapter 4, verses 36 to 34. This is a, a series of uh, parables about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in Mark's own way, then, we, we follow him kind of into a, a simple story in some ways, but one that has profound impact on the whole um, reflective life of the, of the Christian community throughout the centuries. And so we, we go, first of all, to where Jesus said to the crowds, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man throws seed on the land, night and day while he sleeps. When he is awake, the seed is sprouting and growing. How? He does not know. Of its own accord, the land produces first the shoot, then the ear, then the folk grain in the ear. And when the crop is ready, he loses no time. He starts to reap because the harvest has come. The idea here, and this is, this is where we get into some kind of problematic things in Christianity, the idea here, of course, is that while the sower sows the seed, while humanity plants the seed, that the seed grows in ways he does not comprehend or understand, and that it is basically the Lord, then, who performs that inner miracle of life within the whole living organism of the earth, and that uh, we watch as the Lord does that, and then we begin to reap the harvest. Well, some of this, you know, um, some of this has been interpreted over the ages in a kind of a, a way that's, that's not um, compatible with the relationship of God to ourselves and God to the universe. Fortunately, here, um, it, it's, uh, at least Mark here in this parable gives humanity kind of an initial involvement in the kingdom of God. Obviously, this is to evolve into the days of the Enlightenment, and to those who retain some kind of belief in God during the time of the Enlightenment, um, however, have this idea that it's kind of a, the God kind of starts everything and then withdraws and everything then runs on its own. That idea, the deist idea, that God may be the creator, but from then on he has very little to do with things. Um, and here, Mark injects the work of the human person. A man th so throws seed on the ground, so a man sows the seed. And so humanity, at least now in this, contradicts the deist position by putting humanity in kind of a cooperative role with the Lord, a cooperative role with grace. And, uh, and in so doing, then, becomes involved in the mysterious process of growth and of life. I think if we look at the church, then, and we understand and see that this is not an invitation to some kind of initiative and then kind of a quietistic approach to it where we kind of just sit back and let the Lord do his thing. 
Um, that's not that's not what this is about. It's contrasting the work of humanity with the work of the divine. And we can see what humanity is capable of doing. Humanity is capable of tending to the external realities of the faith, to the external realities of the church. Um, but what the result of that is, is, uh, is up to God. He's the one that therefore pulls faith through and grace through this complicated web of human behavior and the, the, um, the mutual cooperation of humanity and of nature. And I think that we, we see, it's kind of interesting, one of the commentators um, makes kind of an, an interesting observation. And he said, uh, the, the harvest intended by God, either by malice or by well-intentional bungling, the message is not insignificant for Christian faith and hope. The kingdom is proof against both its enemies and its friends who cannot divert it from the harvest intended by God. And, and I think that this is, is where we, we come to a critical reflective point in the relationship between God and humanity. We will do the very best we can to make sure that the church is, is well and functioning and so forth. As the commentator said, sometimes that's just simply well-intentioned bungling and nothing comes of it. Sometimes when people try to manipulate the church, that there is malice involved in that and in the malicious underpinnings of what transpires. Um, we, we also find God able to thwart those underpinnings and, uh, and able to correct the bungling of the human person. We plan all the time. We plan. We're always going to plan for the future. And the reality really is that the only way to plan for the future is to take good care of the way things are today. And the future then, according to this parable, will take care of itself. God will guide it and direct it. He'll guide and direct the good plans of today, the good response to the crisis of today. He will let grow into what the future will look like. This is something that's hard for us to grasp and understand, especially in corporate America, where we have this kind of, this kind of deep sense that somehow or other, we're always building structures for the future. We're always going to be able to take care of the future somehow. And of course, we've never been able to, nor will we ever be able to. It is a responsible response to today that brings about what God wants in the future. So that we avoid then, through the sowing of the seed, we avoid the deist position, that we're simply passive bystanders, uh, as, uh, as God un, you know, un, unfolds the mysteries of time and place for us. At the same time, also, it, it dispels the myth that somehow or other we are completely in charge, and if we just get it right, everything will be okay. And the gospel then goes on to say, he also said, what can we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable can we find for it? It is like a mustard seed, which at the time of its sowing is the soil, in the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet once it is sown, it grows into the biggest shrub of them all and puts out big branches so that the birds of the air can shelter in its shade. So the parable of the mustard seed. And... Uh, and this, of course, once again, simply reflects the first parable. 
even though what we do, though we think it might be colossal, what we do is, um, is, is basically minuscule compared with the outcomes that God brings out of the labors of humanity, the outcome he brings out of the labors of the church. I think, I think sometimes, I think one of the great examples of this, for instance, is St. Charles de Foucault, um, who, after his conversion, uh, went through phases of, uh, and until he ended up in the deserts of northern Africa. Um, his great desire was to found a religious community to work with the indigenous people in, in the Sahara. Um, his plan, he spent his life there. He worked um, on uh, translating the local uh, the scriptures into the local language. He was the first one to write a dictionary of the local language. He had good rapport with his neighbors. He, uh, he did everything that he could, and no one ever joined him. He eventually was killed by a marauding group of, of uh, nomads, and, um, and it seems, therefore, to have been the end. And yet, eventually, after his death, after the small seed had fallen into the ground, then grew up the little brothers and the little sisters of Jesus. Then grew up the Jesu Caritas movement among the priests, for, especially for diocesan priests, for kind of a framework and a structure for them retaining some form of prayer and communal prayer life among themselves. That their great fruit grew from that small seed. But what Charles de Foucault had done really did come to nothing. And he was buried in the deserts of North Africa, and the inscription on his tomb was, a citizen of France. Not even acknowledgement of his dreams, his hopes, his dedication, his suffering, his sacrifice, or anything like that. It's simply kind of an, a vacuous, a secular little thing scrolled across his remembrance of his grave. And yet God took that and he let it grow into a very large shrub. The little sisters of the poor and the little brothers of the poor are not, you know, one of the largest religious communities in the world, but they're significant and significant especially in some of the poorer areas of our large cities. And, uh, and they also then, the spirituality of Charles de Foucault um, has had a great impact on the diocesan clergy for many, many years. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, that, uh, that de Foucault was, uh, was someone who he tried everything that he could as a human person. And in the end, it was the Lord that made the seed grow. And I think that's just an illustrative uh, example of what this parable is all about. But it also means, has another possible meaning for us as well. It means that no matter what small things we might do for the faith, that those things can have a great impact on others, a great impact on the growth of the church and the growth of the faith in the hearts and the souls of other people. There, there are, um, certainly in our own personal lives, have there been people who in small ways have so affected us that it has directed us and kept us on our path toward the kingdom of God? Have we played that role in the lives of others as well? And I think probably most of us have in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, and so I think that, uh, 
that the parable has a great deal uh, to say to us. And, and, and also, I think, too, that there's another deep issue that has kind of, I don't know, come up in the history of the Church, where we kind of grapple with this relationship between the human and the divine in the, in the working out of the story of salvation. I know that in, uh, in the 17th century there was a great debate between the Dominicans and the Jesuits um, on the nature of, of grace and, and human freedom. And, uh, and basically the question was, you know, what role does God have in the future when the future can bring forth evil? And uh, the Dominicans said, well, God has to pre-move us to do anything. And so in some way he pre-moves us and then we, we use that pre-motion, um, we pervert it to do evil. The Jesuits said, no, that can't be because then God is a material cooperator in evil and you can't say that. That actually God is just has foreknowledge. He knows what we're going to do, um, but he doesn't move us to do it. And the response to that will be, well, if he knows what's going to happen, what freedom do you have not to let that happen? And so the debate raged. And finally, it was so inconclusive and so acrimonious that Rome finally told them both that they were, they were forbidden to discuss it anymore. But it's interesting, too, because it's based on a theory of grace, which is problematic. You know, if you ask the wrong questions about an issue, you're not going to come up with the right answers. And so when grace was therefore seen as kind of an external force, an external power, um, even a quantity that kind of compelled us to act, um, then you can't come up with it. Well, you can't come up with an answer to that solution or a solution to that problem. If, however, grace is as it is, gratia in Latin, caris in Greek, meaning, and from which we get the word charity, meaning love, meaning grace is essentially a relational bond between humanity and God. We see this particularly clearly in the Old Testament, where, uh, where there is an, 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 a dynamic between humanity and God. And humanity is able to err, but God always calls them back to righteousness and so forth. If we look at grace, therefore, in terms of a relation between humanity and God, then we know and we can understand the vagaries of, of, of human love. And we know that while it is a powerful inner dynamic within our lives, it does not keep us from doing wrong. And that, uh, and that once having done wrong, it opens the doors for us to be reconciled. So that when we get to this idea and see this not as the realm of man and the realm of God and the two of them are separate, when we see it as an integrated realm, as we do in the Old Testament, very honestly, um, where God is very much personally engaged in the story of his people, and we don't kind of abstract it into two sep absolutely separate realms of the natural and the supernatural. And uh, somehow or other don't see a, a loving bond intertwined between those two. Then we're not going to be able to solve the problem of human work and divine work as being cooperative and not, de not determinative. So that if, in fact, we make grace a totally external phenomenon in our lives, 
then we have to deal with the possibility of determinism. And uh, in that possibility, we take away from both our freedom and God's freedom. And those, that is simply not an acceptable proposition in the story of God and us. We see instead this very problematic interpersonal relational um, connection between God and ourselves in which we struggle in our own freedom and in our own way to overcome ourselves that we might be more open, completely open to the freedom that comes to us from God's love for us. So here in the parable of the mustard seed in the mustard bush, we see kind of an example of that. It's not like, all right, I do this and then God does that. I have cooperated in the work of God and God has brought to fruition that cooperation. And, uh, and with, 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 uh, with an understanding that the power of God embedded within human activity is what can help to create and give God the freedom to create those things which are beneficial for us. When we try to take that away from the Lord, um, when we try to do that, we, first of all, it doesn't work. Um, you know, we can build the perfect edifice, but as the Psalms say, and, and, unless unless the Lord build the house in vain to its builders' labor. And I think that that's, that's a very, very good um, insight for the contemporary relationship between the church and Jesus Christ, that when the church itself attempts to create secular phenomenon and, uh, and does so in a secular sort of way, it certainly is not going to be, it can cause terrible disruptions, but it's not going to, in the end, be very successful. Any more than planning processes, which depend completely on the expertise of humanity, are going to bear much fruit in the end. There has to be this surrender to grace, and in this surrender to grace, the willingness to give our all for what we think to be best, and allow the Lord to bring out of that what he wants to see for the growth of his church. And so then the gospel goes on to say, using many parables like these, he spoke the word to them so far as they were capable of understanding it. He would not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything to his disciples when they were alone. And here's something that I think is is pretty interesting too for us. Um, He speaks to them only in parables so that they could understand what they were capable of understanding. And I think that this causes us a problem when we say, well, why doesn't he just come out and say it? Why does he tell the stories? Well, because if Jesus had given a narrative, just a, just a possibility, if Jesus had given a narrative about the relationship between human labor and the work of God, it would have been a narrative encased in the language, the conceptual framework, and the the understandings of the first century, because that's when Jesus lived, and that's when he um, and that's when he opened the treasures of himself and his wisdom to humanity. 
But those kinds of narratives have a way of becoming, of just kind of becoming part of ancient literature. They become partially, when we read, for instance, the commentary that the fathers give, when we read the literature of the first, second, and third century Christians, what we begin to see is they're interesting, they're fascinating, but they're not popularly accessible. They're not something you, you don't find in every Catholic household, you know, parents sitting down with their children and, uh, you know, reading them from the treatises of Basil the Great or Gregory Nazianzen and so forth. But you paint a picture with words, like the parables are. And when you paint that picture with words, the picture endures through the centuries, and it doesn't change. Human's interpretation and understanding of it can change, but the image remains the same. And, and I think that that's part of the, the genius, of the divine genius of sacred scripture, is that there are so many images of reality, of truth, that are embedded within the scriptures, that they become for us then perpetual stories, stories which are always there in their core, and yet open to us the possibility of approaching them as modern men and women, and understanding them, not to change their inner meaning, but of understanding them in ways that enable us to live more faithfully the, the way of the gospel. Even, uh, it, it's, it's really, um, it's a problematic issue in, in the transmission of the past, always. That, um, you know, there was in the, in the 18th century a, uh, uh, a German historian who had decided that he had had enough of interpretive history, and so he was going to write history as it actually happened. Well, of course, you can't do that because you weren't there. What happens then, and there's a German philosopher, Friedrich Herder, and he has maybe a more realistic understanding of it. He said that the past is, is like a landscape, and each painter, each interpreter, paints it, the landscape remains, but the paintings are, in, are somehow or other interpretive of every age and time and place and person. If you take any one of the multiple interpretations of the landscape and you go to the landscape, you'll recognize it. But at the same time, it is not a precise image that comes down to us. So here too, Jesus is using examples of something very familiar to the first century Palestinian. And yet, for us, then, we can see someone sowing seed. We know what the mustard fields look like. And we know that mustard plants can grow into large bushes and so forth. So we get kind of an image in our minds. And then we can come back and interpret those images. For instance, in, in, the, in the recounting of the story of the, of the conflict over the nature of grace in the 17th century, we have an interpretation of this parable. And yet two different radical interpretations, neither one of them which, re, which captures the original, the original question. Because through the foibles of human thought, um, the picture itself um, is attempted to be changed by the reason of humanity. And of course, that's simply doesn't happen. And uh, in simply not happening, then 
what the futile what the futile arguments of humanity are fall by the wayside as a significant interpretation of the truth of the gospel. So that we ourselves then say, well, why did he use parables? He used parables so that we could understand what he was talking about 2,000 years later. He used parables so that we could grapple with the things that he said throughout the centuries instead of simply having it as some kind of an obscure theological tract hidden away in some group of manuscripts of the first century. And then he said, but who is disciples? Then he would explain everything. We can sit down with a small group, and in that small group we can begin to elucidate our feelings and elucidate our thoughts. We can explore the different things that this might mean theologically in the story of the church, and the story of our relationship with God. We can do all of those kinds of things in a small group of people, a small group of like-minded people. But if we are going to speak to a larger group and we attempt to do that, then we simply sow confusion and distrust. When, in fact, a universal reality attempts to legislate or take charge in particular and minute ways of local phenomenon, it is never successful. It always ends up simply in confusion and ambiguity. A universal statement is like a parable, And then the local church, for instance, has to engage in interpreting that parable into the life, their life, their time, their place. And that's the role that the local teaching authority of the church has in cooperation with the faith of the people. They begin then to experience this this corporate consciousness. It's not clearly defined, but it is a movement And with both the instruction and clarification of church authority and the experience and subjective response of God's people, there is a cooperative effort which interprets the faith and helps us to live faithfully and prepare the present in such a way that the future can legitimately grow out of what we have done. And so these parables then become significant for us. And this gospel becomes significant for us, for it teaches us a great deal about the vastness of the question of the relationship between God and ourselves in the working out and the destiny of the church in time and place, and helps us then to actively participate while at the same time acknowledging the superiority of the revelation over our own insights and over our own endeavors to bring some kind of concrete reality out of the parables of truth that the Lord gives to his people. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who better?